Welcome to Coffee Hour with Reverend Andrew Conley Holcomb and Reverend Alyssa DeWolf. We are excited to chat with you. <laughs> and really go back to some kind of foundational stuff. We've been exploring a lot of uh, diverse issues, um, but now we want to kind of come back to some central uh, issues for the two of us around where where do our beliefs come from. I'm uh, Reverend Andrew Conley Holcomb, pastor of Admiral Congregational Church in West Seattle. I'm the Reverend Alyssa DeWolf, pastor of Wayside UCC in Federal Way, Washington, and we thought, you know, it's our 11th episode. We might want to come back and talk a little bit more about us. And um, this is, episode actually is inspired. I was at a conference, virtual conference recently, and uh, Ron Heifetz spoke, who is the leader of Adaptive Leadership Center at Harvard University. And he was talking about how uh, there are different types of losses, um, material losses, loss of competency, and loss of belief. And when he was talking about loss of belief, it just like blew me over, like knocked me out. Like I cannot stop thinking about this. Hmm. Um, and the thing that he said was that our beliefs come from the people who believed in us. He's talking about our beliefs are anchored not in faith, but the people who gave us that faith. And when we question our beliefs, we are renegotiating the relationships of our ancestors. And I was like, holy crap, yes. <laughs> this is where all of my baggage comes from (laughs) it makes total sense you know i've been doing a series um on what it means to be a good ancestor and Mm -hmm. it's the engagement from my congregation has been really high because i think there's a hunger to talk about these connections to lineage or lack thereof and these kind of broken relationships and i I think this topic is really um, marries well with that idea of thinking about our beliefs as anchored in these ancestral relationships that are either healthy or have been unhealthy and how that kind of changes how we are as people of faith and uh, people in relationship. And I, I find too that like the hardest thing when one is in a process of changing their beliefs, especially if that change is really radical from what they were raised in, is the issue is not like what your new ideas are about God or about whatever. Your issue is how those ideas might create a disconnection or create a disconnection with the relationships that helped create your previous original beliefs. Um, Whether that's disconnecting from family, whether that's disconnecting from a religious organization, like whatever that is, but it really kind of draws down to the shame and the fear and the difficulty and the radicalness of stepping out and saying, I believe something different, Mm -hmm. um, is that you might lose community. Yeah. One, it kind of calls out like 
how do you are you still loyal to this person are you still committed to this person if you believe something radically different like if you grew up in a conservative faith community and you start transitioning to either have no faith or have a more progressive faith like what are you are you inherently critiquing those people by having a different set of beliefs i think there's a lot of people that struggle with that in in particular but you see the same thing around relationships with food like when, mm. or relationships with exercise just the way that we live our lives inherently ends up leading to a shift in relationship because we start feeling like if we live really differently than people in our circle it's experienced either as a critique or a condemnation one way or the other. I don't know why, but you're talking about critique of food made me think of the scene in my big fat Greek wedding when she brings her non-Greek fiance and he tells them that he's vegetarian. Yeah. And they're like, so you eat lamb, right? Right. <laughs> like, um, so, I mean, it's not always linear either. Right. It's not always this sort of like cut and dry, if I change my beliefs, therefore I will no longer have these relationships. It is so much more complicated than that. And I think almost it's easier when the cut is so dry and clean. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But rather what we find ourselves in is playing this dance of like how much of our beliefs do we expose and how much do we keep hidden for the sake of um, communal peace. Well, think about the whole narrative about Thanksgiving, right? Like, whether it's a true narrative or not, the narrative is we don't talk about these things at the family dinner table because we want to preserve the integrity of the family. And we we believe that having diverse beliefs will undo the integrity of the family, like threaten the relationship. So there is some, like, kind of latent, uh, unnamed truth to this statement about beliefs being in, connected directly to relationships. I feel like every single uh, Thanksgiving special on Saturday Night Live has a skit that goes with that idea of, you know, you say don't talk about what? Religion, politics, and uh, what else? Money at the dinner table. Right, which is directly connected to your politics and your religion. religion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which as pastors, it's kind of hard to not talk about religion at the dinner table, um, regardless of whether you want to or not. I feel like once people know you're a pastor, that the topic comes up. Uh, My mother-in-law likes to save all of her, like, tough, hard-to-crack religious questions for any time she comes and visits. And I'm like, oh, God. Which usually starts with, Alyssa, I have a question. Don't get mad at me. I'm like, I'm not going to be mad at you, but oh no. <laughs> I really just want to eat this pie. Can we just have pie? I'm like, I feel like my whole seminary uh, education is on trial right yeah, now. Like, sure. <laughs> I hope I come off competent. But this is, answering those questions is loaded because it's not someone from my congregation. It's not a stranger from the street. It is someone who is deeply connected to the inner work like inner club of community that is my life you know you you don't want to piss off your mother-in-law um because she's not going anywhere (laughs) i have a great mother-in-law by the way (laughs) it's important to say that it's important to say that (laughs) well i think part of the problem about discussing religion is that we're using very 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 complicated symbols Mm -hmm. that are very nuanced and diverse right if i say the cross God knows what I'm actually talking about. I mean, God does know, but like you don't, right? Yeah. I have to put a lot of framing around it. And I think 
I think Christians forget how loaded our symbols are sometimes. I think progressive Christians remember and just stop using them. Yeah. And we start saying love instead of talking about other things like, heaven forbid, the blood of Jesus. I was like, just say, we take all the blood songs out of the yeah, hymnal. Exactly. Or we change them to love because because we we don't invest in those symbols and so we don't use them because we haven't made meaning out of them. And I think that's where it gets really tricky when you're when your belief framework shifts is um, you really have to be careful when you're talking to people to make sure you're talking about the same thing. Yes. And so when somebody asks me a religious question, I have a lot more questions for them than yes. I do answers because I need to know, like, when I say salvation, what does that mean to you? When I say redemption, what does that mean to you? Like, where are you, where are you anchoring some of these symbols? And so I tend to not answer with the big symbols and especially if somebody asks a question with the big symbols I have a lot of questions back to them first before I start sharing my opinion I always am looking for like buzzwords and coded language to be able to gauge what kind of conversation I'm going to be having because yeah exactly you you're speaking two different languages which goes back to that point of this is about a communal cultural Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is not just about like do you believe and Jesus Christ is your savior, for example. Right. Like, that question has so much behind it. Sure. And I think, I mean, I would say for both of us, the reason why, like, we bring this up is both of us have had religious or faith shifts in our mm-hmm. life. Um, I would say pretty, yeah, dramatically for both of us. So there has been this change of relationship too Mm -hmm. and decisions that had to be made along the way I can speak for myself of saying like am I going to side with my parents or am I going to side with what I now think to be right Right. like am I going to risk disconnection right right and it's been funny for me because I think my communities have changed as my beliefs have changed and as my relationship to the faith has changed and now like by and large, I'm not really in relationship with the people that I was close to because they don't, they don't share the same kind of framework. And, and so like I can hang out with them, but I've done that a couple of times and I've been like, wow, we don't, we don't have a lot of common ground to talk about here. Um, and it's not like, it's, it's not like we need to talk about religion all the time, but like Jesus is pretty central to my everyday life. And many, if not most, if not all of the decisions I make have something to do with my understanding of participating in co-creating the kingdom of God. And if that's not a framework that you have, then a lot of like our way of being in the world and like ethical decision making is just inherently going to be different. And so like, I don't know. It's it's funny. I haven't actually really thought about it. But yeah, every time I had a kind of a profound reorientation in my my faith journey, I also had a radical shift in my uh, in my networks. Now, I'm wondering, were you unique in that or is there a pattern? Because as I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, there actually is a pattern in my like history of, of this sort of like religious disconnection of, of changing from the norm in which you were born. Mm-hmm. Um, were you in sort of shifting your ideas? Was that unique to your family system or to your well, so community? I would, I would say part of the problem here too is that like I am an overeducated person. And so I had a number of shifts that were related to my contact with higher education institutions which inherently also shifted my relationships just because of context. 
And so it, it's hard to disentangle those things. Like when you go to a seminary, you start hanging out with a bunch of people who are interested in faith. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when you're going to graduate school in genocide studies, it's a toss up. And probably those aren't the conversations you're having or if you are, they're in these relegated spaces. So, um, but if you're asking about within my family, I would say that by and large, my parents haven't moved a lot in their belief system over the past 20 years. I, it doesn't seem to me. And I would say that my brother has become a more like socially conservative. I don't know what his faith life is like, but he's become a little bit more socially conservative with Matt, which matches kind of the context that he works in and probably, you know, it matches the community that he lives in and it probably matches the social environment that he's in. Yeah. Uh, I just, I, I don't know. It just like occurred to me because thinking back, like, the, you know, just with my parents is like my, both my parents, well, my mother chose to step away from um, traditional Lutheranism mm-hmm. and then to move from Lutheranism to become a Pentecostal. Like she okay. had a conversion experience um, and was done so in a way that was so different than mm-hmm. what her parents and her parents' legacy because her mother was the daughter of a Lutheran missionary mm-hmm. um, and not, you know, evangelical Lutheran. They were Missouri Synod, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, which my grandmother eventually was was a evangelical lutheran um which is more progressive uh but uh so there was that shift where like still in the realm of christianity but but it it felt almost like moving to another country like it's just so different my my grandmother like tolerated coming to church services with us when there were like special services when we were having special things happen but she was always like very uncomfortable (laughs) and like this is not my jam this is like not my thing well worship is such a cultural practice yeah that like um you know we could talk about this around race but like sometimes white folks are like why don't people of color come to our worship services are we just not woke enough and i'm like it it's actually about the the cultural context this is a white worship service everybody let's just say that and be okay with that this is super white culture the whole thing yeah yeah. I was watching uh, the other night um, American Gods on the Stars, mm. which is based on the Neil Gaiman. Um, Neil, mm-hmm. how's that how you say his last name? Oh, whatever. Yeah. But uh, uh, based on his book series, and there was the one of the main characters had a, was talking about Jesus, and he was like, you know, there's the black Jesus, there's the uh, Mexican Jesus, there's the Greek Jesus, there's the white Jesus, and the guy he was talking to was like, like isn't there just Jesus? And he's like, he's like, no, there's a lot of Jesus out there and Jesus is really busy. So like, uh, you know, there's a lot of different Jesus for everybody who needs their version of Jesus. <laughs> Which is one of the amazing things about Jesus. Is yeah. He's so culturally flexible. Um, that's, um, what's that guy, Reza Aslan's whole argument about Jesus. He has a whole book on Jesus where he talks about the, the ethnic and cultural diversity of Jesus. Which is ironic because we then put Jesus into very limited boxes and very strict ideas of what even Jesus looks like um, versus this expansiveness that Jesus sort of calls us into that, you know, what do we do with this idea that all are welcome, that all are loved, that all are forgiven, that all, you know, are afforded grace? Like, what do we do with that? Right. Well, and that his, one of his most important titles is son of man, which really means son of humanity, which means the human one, like the epitome of humanness, which means transcending particularities of culture and being transcultural. So having an experience of like opening one's ideas to the more expansiveness 
of God's love and of Jesus's favor, I feel like would be a really positive cultural experience. But we're so fixated on this idea of community that I think right. that's why it narrows us down ideologically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny because like, so I think I, you know, I gave the example of my mom and then you have my dad who grew up um, very, very small, you know, for the first like five, six years of his life. Um, with the Church of Scientology in that his father and his grandfather started the Church of Scientology and then they broke, obviously, from that because it's wacko. Um, <laughs> um, and spent the rest, almost the rest of his life up until his, like, uh, early 20s, like, running from the church. Hmm. Um, and they had some sort of, like, affiliations with, you know, Christianity and with the Episcopal Church, but there was just a very clear sense of what, like, disconnection looks like and, sure. like really sort of cutting oneself off from um, one's legacy and kind of starting a completely new identity. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, meeting my mom and then converting to Pentecostal Christianity. Um, So there's this, like, these layers of disconnection. So it it almost shouldn't be shocking for one of their children to come out and say, like, I disconnect from the Pentecostal Christianity that you uh raised us in and like now move towards a different ideology a more progressive ideology and yet i find myself always trying to kind of legitimize my beliefs and my roles through the framework of what they believe and think and that their ideas have become much more rigid when they come from this legacy Mm -hmm. of change and of disconnecting and reconnecting Oh, interesting. They like ideas. double down. They double down, yeah. Which happens, which is actually not a unique thing. Sure. Um, sure. It's hypocritical in a lot of ways, but it's not It's not unique. Well, it's not surprising, right? If we're going to reject something, like our, I think our ego self needs to know that we're rejecting something for something that's more true, more clear. Um, you know, we're rejecting this thing because it's vague and inconsistent, so we have to then claim this thing that's more consistent and more crystallized and more like literal. I think there's a there's a, just an inherent desire for it. But if I'm gonna reject that, then I need to be holding on to something. It's it's the rare Christian that is willing to say my faith is a paradox at its base and it it's inconsistent and that's what having faith is about. I think that most people, myself included, I want hard and fast rules. I want clarity. They're just can't find it well and i can think from my dad who literally moved more than 14 times before he started high school because they were literally fleeing from the um the church that wow that he saw he lived the extreme of what it is to be cut off from a religious community and what it is to be unable to invest in any other type of community and so i can imagine that when an opportunity arises to be really invested in a community that says like you're special you're unique you're chosen um that you would double down into that because you never had the opportunity to have that before and that too then can stand in in a lot of ways for the type of family and type of relationship and type of community you may not have gotten um in like your childhood and in your nuclear family which i can i mean i'm not a qualified psychologist but i feel like i can say that that definitely <laughs> seems that way well there's some interesting ways there too where like our faith gets associated with our trauma right mm. like, because when we experience that profound rejection that kind of dis 
dissociation from our community, if our community is where we hold our identity, then there's, I think it's reasonable to say there's a trauma that's baked in there about who am I, do I matter, am I worthy, which is one of the big questions I think faith answers. And so when you find a community that says, yes, you, even you, especially you, then there's like, well, I need that. And depending, I mean, I've known a number of people who have experienced that and then it starts walking in these other like kind of faith commitments that you need to make and these creeds that you need to claim. And it's like, but I want this feeling of welcome. So I guess, yeah, I guess I believe that because I want, I, there was something I tasted that was of God Mm -hmm. and it just so happens to be connected with this other stuff that doesn't really feel like it's of God. But that thing that I tasted was definitely, and if I have to, if I have to endure this and embrace this to keep eating this good food, then I'll do that. I think there's a lot of people caught in that that are trying to find trying to find that banquet that's set that doesn't also ask for that sacrifice in some other place. Well, and you can't fault people for disconnecting their idea of their faith and their ideas of God because of a trauma that they experienced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a religious community or in a religious yeah. family. I mean, I think of a lot of the queer community who were raised in, you know, Christian or even non-Christian, you know, non-LGBT affirming religious um, groups and and have nothing to do with church or with God. And it's in a way I find it to be kind of sad because we, I say we as a person in the queer community, but like we lose this opportunity to know an extravagant love that does say, you know, as you said, like you are worthy, you are good, you are blessed, you are loved, like you are gifted um, because we associate it so much with the trauma that we experience. Right. And, and I'm, and you know, I say, I've said to many people before, I'm like, I have like, I feel like I have like every box almost that you could check of like, why I should not be a Christian. Like mm-hmm. there is like not a lot of good reasoning for me to mm-hmm. let alone be a like believer in Christianity. Um, let alone like a pastor, like, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a gay woman, like, um, and all the different layers and different things that come, come with that and other stuff. And it's, and yet, and yet, because this idea of God's love being so extravagant and being so unconditional, it has kept me in this world of faith that I, I can't disassociate myself from that. So let's talk about that a little bit because we set up this episode really thinking about the ways that as our faith shifts, our community shifts. But I think that there's a there's a there's a paradox in that, too, because there's like the deep theology, right? The deep theology of welcome, of God's love, of the concept of grace. And we talked about symbols before. and I'm going to set that aside for a second. But like there's the deep theology of encounter with the divine. And then there's the like more shallow theology about how all that works out, you know? And I feel like usually when I encounter people that are in a shifting theological space, it's usually the shallower theology that shifts because I feel like that deep theology is what keeps them looking for a better church community or a better polity or a better missional orientation, Mm -hmm. that those are the shifting pieces. But like the deep, the deep theology of belovedness is either the thing that somebody has encountered and knows and that keeps them searching or it's the thing that's been threatened by their trauma and their their pain and it 
it pushes them away from the whole thing. And so what I hear in your story is that more of those kind of ways of being shifted, but the deep theology w- remained consistent. Yeah, absolutely. But And I find that, though, in order to express the deep theological ideas, in order to live them out, in order to find a way to sort of um, manifest them, mm-hmm. is we then shift these shallow yeah. ideologies and these shallow sort of likes and dislikes. Um, Let's call them practices. Practices, that's better. To to find a means and a way to live into those deep mm-hmm. theologies. And I think a lot of that component, like that reason behind that is the fact that like faith is communal. Yes. And that we, this idea of like a personal relationship with God, I think, yes, we do ultimately have a personal relationship because only ourselves and God know what goes on between myself and God. But to truly live out this idea of love and loving one's neighbor and loving God, it has to be done in community. Mm-hmm. Um, we can argue about monasticism another time, which I don't really have an argument for or against it. But <laughs> we'll figure point, out a way to argue yeah, about it later. <laughs> at this point in my life, um, like I, th- I mean, I think of the Trinity that even within God's essence, it is communal. Right. That we must um, be in community. So we seek community out to find a way to manifest those ideas to live out um god's you know call to love our neighbor and to love god but what i think often happens is i mean what what has to happen is we make adaptations and we make sacrifices so that we can have a community and i think sometimes the sacrifices and the adaptations we make actually end up keeping us from manifesting and living into the ministry of god um, can you give an example? I think it's, I can say it for like myself. Like I feel like I'm sort of at this precipice of wanting to really kind of like live into a much more, uh, how do I say, like transparent idea of like Jesus, like centering Jesus really wholly in mm-hmm. my ministry and in my life, um, which you would think like, well, that should be super easy. You're a pastor, obviously. And it's like, no, I'm a pastor <laughs> in a progressive church that is non-credal, that doesn't expect Jesus anyone to believe in any particular thing. And there's right. a fear resonant within that, that if I were to truly double down on Jesus, and I'm not talking about like, is Jesus your personal savior or anything like that i'm just talking about like the teachings of jesus and what jesus calls us into that there is can be a real fear of for one like losing my job um but also a fear of being shunned from the community because there's not i don't necessarily know where that fits and what we can then do is try and sort of replicate to what fits the closest so we could think like okay well i know what it looks like i personally know what it looks like to be a very like outward forward Jesus loving um Christian and that is sort of like seen or exemplified in more of the conservative evangelical Pentecostal world I don't want to be that though like the the theological underpinnings of that like don't resonate with me um and so it's like okay well I could adapt in that way but I'm gonna have to sacrifice you know x y and z to be in that community and so it's what is more important is it being able to you know uh yell from the rooftops like Jesus 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 or is it being able to believe that like Jesus doesn't save only like a couple you know 
amount of people who say a certain prayer and do a certain live a certain lifestyle and look look a certain way like whereas I need to be a little bit more close-handed about like my particular ideas of like Jesus in order to not like push those ideas onto anyone um so I think, but then how do I like you know yeah. evangelize and like good news how do I share the good news because there is good news there and also make it not look like the like evangelical conservative world, which can, you know, it's a mess. Right. Well, I think it's a mess. Is, I think this is where centering on practices and remembering that faith is as much a, a set of praxis as it is a set of uh, articles of faith, right? Mm-hmm. That like what we believe about God, about people, about um, creation, etc., like is we we're always operating in a world of symbol, right? And what people put into the symbol is is part of the praxis. Like, if you have a big picture of white Jesus in the room, the grandmas in the room have a very different relationship to that picture because that used to be up in their households. And the mothers in the room in their 60s and 70s also have a different relationship because that picture used to be up in grandma's house, right? There's... There's this way that, like, the younger people are going to see that and they'll be like, white Jesus, are you kidding me? And people of color are going to roll in and say, you got to be kidding me. But other people of color will be like, that was in my grandma's house too, right? So there's the praxis part, I feel like, is the part that defines the community because it's the part that says, this is how we're going to how we're gonna express and live into this deep theology. And I think as a pastor, part of our job is to kind of suss out what's the praxis here? And is it actually serving the deep theology or not? And and I find that like the church I serve does not probably worship God the way that if I were just a, a, a an individual who is going to worship that someone else created, it's probably not the kind of worship I would want both a more charismatic experience and I'd want a more contemplative experience. Those are like, you know, kind of, you can argue that they're dichotomic, they're oppositional they're very different but they both speak to a different need i have about encountering the divine and i think that the the faith community kind of negotiates how are they going to build practices to encounter the divine and i think that's why you get this separation is like this community has decided that their approach is going to be singing this music and uh, hearing these kinds of prayers and listening to sermons that are this long and relate in this way to this particular scripture and like i think i think that we we sometimes think that that's the faith but that's just the praxis of Mm -hmm. that community building that faith but it also like people are drawn together because they want to share praxis together and so the communities are really different from each other because they want to approach god differently it's not bad to see like this connection with with relationship with our beliefs like it's not a bad inherently bad thing but I think like recognizing the fact that like we uphold certain practices so that the community stays together not because they are divine practices is important absolutely um and I think that's kind of where like this conversation sort of is centering around too is this idea of like you know hymns for example oh I I got a pastoral review recently and within the same section almost like right one right after another was like I really like the hymns I really don't like the hymns you know it's like okay (laughs) um but like music I think because of the fact that music touches a different literally touches a different part of our like soul and our being and we Mm -hmm. have a different experience with it than um hearing someone preach or teach or um 
you know, any other experience, it, it's very sensitized to I to to experience, yes. to relationship, to yes. um, you know, that song comes on on the radio and it takes you back to yeah. like a moment in time that you feel like you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, it opens up an emotional space in a way that the kind of heady engagement stuff doesn't, which is why music is so critical to worship. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's so hard to navigate that in COVID when you can't sing in a group. Exactly. Um, exactly. But I think it's so hard in yeah. a church because, like, I think in many ways, churches are defined, one, by their espoused theology and their creedal structure. And then really strongly in another way, they're defined by the kind of mer- music that they do. Is it communal singing? Is it soloist singing? Is it a choir singing? Like... What does the tempo, what's the style, what's the history? Like, is it in discrete places in the service? Is it kind of just constant spread out through the whole thing? I mean, I think there's so much, there's so much that that really is a cultural manifestation of the church and a big part of the praxis. And so I think that a lot of the big fights in churches and a lot of the big conflict is between the pastor and the music director more often than not, because those are where the kind of, the center of the definition of the community lands is what's the theology espoused from the pulpit and what's the experience that's proclaimed from the piano. Yeah, and I find that, like, you know, you're talking about praxis. It's sort of like things like musical are like a vessel, a vehicle to connect with the divine. Um, And so, again, we have to be careful that, like, we don't assume, too, that, like, our way of connecting with the divine is the way that everyone should connect with the divine. And so I find that, like, you know, in this discussion of of belief and where do our beliefs come from and how we we create practices based on our beliefs and based on our communities that we are in is sort of how do we then be a community of faith that is able to have deep faith but also be open enough to have diverse experiences yeah i mean i think one of the things that i would love to see actually happen in covid times is people actually going to worship somewhere else? Not with the intention of, let's judge our church against this church and let's see how good our pastor is doing or how crappy their music program is or whatever, like some comparative ethic. But go and say, how can I feel the presence of God in this very different context? And really push yourself. Like whenever I go visit another church, I always bring my critical brain and my critical mind and I have to really work hard to say, no, no, no. I'm not here to see how they do decorations better. I'm not here to critique. Oh, God, it's so hard, especially yeah. as a pastor. Yes. Jesus. But like, go and say, I know that the Spirit of God is at work and present in this way of doing things that is unfamiliar to me. I'm going to stay open and listen and and really intend to encounter the spirit of God in this place that does this so differently than me. And I feel like occasionally I can do that when it, when it's completely outside of my cultural context and occasionally feel that spirit. But most of the time my like analyzing, uh, critiquing brain just like takes over. And then we get into this judgment comparison piece mm-hmm. of like, well, we did it better. Or man, they really did we should start doing what they're yeah. doing because clearly it's amazing. Or there's the experience of like, this is so different and so new that I can't get beyond the fact that this is so different and right. so new. Right. 
I mean, I've definitely had that experience on multiple occasions. I remember as a kid, my aunt was, uh, went to a Foursquare church. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Pentecostals are known for being loud and rowdy, um, but they uh, they don't dance. Whereas Foursquare, uh, traditionally, they have, like, musical instruments and flags, and they're, like, dancing around um, and being slain in the spirit. And I remember just sit, standing in the pew with my little tambourine that my aunt gave me being mm-hmm. like, what is happening i am totally freaked out like don't make me walk underneath the flag tunnel like i don't want to do and you would think as someone coming from you know a more charismatic tradition that i would be like oh this is fine like no big deal but like you know the volume was like up to 11 that i was just (laughs) like uh can we turn it down to 10 please like this is just one more notch is like too much for me and on the other hand though like i've had incredibly profound experiences being in communities that were nothing like any community i was a part of you know when i experienced monday thursday from a very like liturgical uh episcopal church i was floored Mm -hmm. i was just like Mm -hmm. knocked out like i had a more charismatic experience in that very liturgical experience Mm -hmm. than ever in my pentecostal upbringing um you know i had the fortune of going to Mm taze and hearing um being with the brothers there and hearing them sing and being in bible study with them and like like the the fact of not just like being at Taze, but the fact that Taze is always full of usually young people from yes. all over the world yes. and so you're having this experience too of like a global christianity mm-hmm. in multiple languages and you're just yeah. like wow like god is like everywhere right. and with everyone um but like i'm not necessarily i'm not episcopal and i'm not practicing Taze, com- you know not doing compline or right. anything on a regular basis but it but it was profound and it was profound because there was an intentionality going in saying this is about experiencing God right and this is about having a a new experience with God and and I think it's that allowing ourselves to experience God so I think this is where uh, we we need to loop this back in to all of the divisiveness that we encounter in our country and the way that we might have even framed this question unhelpfully at the beginning is we started by framing this about how our faith changes and then therefore our communities change. But it's really, it seems like it's our way of expressing our deep theology that's the piece that changes and that's what we do communally. We might have the deep theology, but the way that we express it, reinforce it, retell it, experience it, and share it is this thing that we do communally and that those practices are are part of what helps to define a community, helps to attract people, but also kind of repels people that aren't interested in being that way together and we kind of negotiate it together. And I think so much about how politics in America is the same thing. Like the deep theology of America is in many ways this sense of freedom and justice. Now, what that looks like and who it's for and how we manifest it in the world is very, very different, very different. But I think you could argue that if you go to any political group within the United States and you ask them about their deep theology, freedom and justice are going to be really central concepts for them. How they met those out and who they're who they center in those conversations is going to be different. And I think this is part of our problem in America right now. We're heading up to this election. It's going to be 
very hotly contested. I think America is going to go through some really hard times in the next three months, and it's going to be scary because we're going to get distracted from our deep theology and we're going to focus on our kind of communal machinations of how we work that out. And we have not found leadership. We have not found people who are willing to say, let's go back to our deep theology. Let's go back to this. Where do we all agree? What do we all ultimately really want for ourselves, our families, and our communities? There's nobody having that conversation because they're getting too much benefit from participating in this shallower place of the how, not the why. And I think that as people of faith, our job is to remember that all of our practices are not what God wants, mm-hmm. right? Like this is where I go back to Micah and all, and all of the prophets. Honestly, Isaiah talks about this too. Like your sacrifices are nothing to me. What I want is mm-hmm. I want your kindness. I want your heart. I don't want your bells and whistles and smoke and incense. Like that shit doesn't matter to me. I mean, I'm glad that you do it and I'm glad that it helps you center on God, but that's... Yeah. That's not God. Well, even Jesus, when he's, you know, he's talking to the the rich man who comes up to him and rich man says, how do you know, how do I get into the kingdom of God? And he's like, you know, Jesus lists off all the 10 commandments. He's like, awesome. Been there, done that. Do right. it every day. Got it. Got it. Unlock. Right. Um, and he's like, no, 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 no. Then go and sell everything and, and dedicate your life to me and to the poor. And it's like, uh, nope. Like, <laughs> um, because the, the, the practice shifts suddenly and it's, it's. It's when we lose that, like, basic relationship, that basic need of community, of, of looking at each other as a community, that we allow for these practices and these machinations to sort of take over mm-hmm. the core aspects of what makes us human, what makes mm-hmm. us a community, what makes us children of God. Sure. You know what's funny, though, about that story is the fact that he even came to Jesus and asked him that question meant that there was a longing that was not being satisfied, right? Like, he asked that mm. question, and then Jesus says, do all these things, and he's like, yeah, I got, I'm doing all that, but I still need something else. Yeah. And Jesus was, like, looking at him, he's like, there's something in the way of you connecting. There's something in the way of you meeting the need of feeling beloved and welcome, and I think it's this. And he's like... But I don't want to touch that. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not willing to change this part of my life that is separating me from people. And, well, went- and, and it's because that's the raw core part of his life. It's like Jesus hits on the, like, the, the, the real issue. Right. And, and oftentimes, we'd rather just deal with the shallow stuff. Right. Because it's manageable, it's easy, it doesn't turn us inside out and upside down again. It doesn't make us have to feel pain right. and even great joy. It's, you know, if we can keep things surface level, if we can keep things at the praxis, right. then like we don't have to go deep. Because going deep requires work and it works on us. Sure, sure. So this Heifetz quotes that you lift up at the beginning, I do want to circle back to this idea of if... If we, our allegiance is to people and not to concepts, our allegiance needs to be to being in community. And that sometimes when we're in community, we have to make some 
I don't want to use the word sacrifices because I'm really I'm really doing a lot of work on that concept. I don't like that concept anymore. We have to make accommodations. We have to make space. We have to be a little bit uncomfortable in order to be in community, which means we need to not center our own comfort, which is one of the marks of white supremacy culture is the right to comfort. We have to let go of our right to comfort in order to continue to hold the community together. And I think you see the big fights in churches are about how we do certain things, the praxis piece, ends up splitting the churches. You've heard of the 40-gallon Baptist before? No. Oh, God. So the Baptist <laughs> church has had all of these splits. And my favorite example of this is they baptized this young woman, but they did it in a small thing of water, and her head didn't go completely underneath the water. Oh, snap. And there was a fight in the church about whether she was baptized or not and whether she needed to be baptized again, whether that one didn't count because she wasn't completely immersed. And the church split, and the new denomination was the 40-gallon Baptist, where if you're going to baptize somebody, it has to be in at least 40 gallons of water so the person can be completely submerged. That was actually a split. A, wow. a community came apart around that issue, that praxis issue, which I'm just like, man, think about how many other conflicts and traumas and like dissociation from each other there must have been that that was what split this community. And how many of our communities are on the verge of splitting around these praxis issues? Or dying around or, these praxis or issues. Or dying around these praxis issues. And how many of our political institutions, I mean, how many of our communal relationships are so tenuous because our relationship with the people is secondary to the way that we relate to the people? Mm -hmm. The way you need to show up. I mean, the whole <laughs> nonsense of cancel culture, which isn't even really a thing, but like that whole like rejecting people who have different political beliefs than you is part of this same whole thing. Well, also, it, you know, in, in bringing up cancel culture, the idea that people can't change, that we don't evolve and yes. change our ideas, yes. that we don't, that we don't afford people the opportunity for like forgiveness and right. grace. And, and I'm not saying that like forgiveness and grace condones people's bad behavior, yes. but how can we in ask people to be better if we don't allow people to make mistakes along the way well what we have to do is we have to be bold enough to share our vulnerability and share mm -hmm. the ways that people harm us right like the only way that somebody's going to grow out of being immature and uh inconsiderate is if they know that it hurts someone they care about so they have to come to care about you and you have to care about them and then you have to be bold enough to say, hey, that hurt. Like that was yeah. uncomfortable and scary to me. And I need you to care about it because I care about you. And I assume and I want you to care about me. And if it's rooted in that love, people's behavior changes. If it's rooted in rules, people's behavior becomes covert. But it doesn't really change. Well, I would say people's behavior even becomes more uh, solidified. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I could go on like a total tirade about how that like... The example of, of gun violence prevention yeah. and how, you know, as somebody who who lived and experienced the Sandy Hook shootings, like, I always thought to myself, like, how many people, how many kids are going to have to die until it yep. becomes personal to you that you actually do something yep. about it? Yep. Um, because that that's really been a lot of the the response in, in some ways is it's it's it doesn't affect me. Therefore... Right. I don't need to do anything about it. Right. Until it does. Until it does. Right. Until it's like, somebody steals no, my gun. God forbid. No. Like, <sighs> we, 
we got to go back to basics in so many ways. Yes. Back to basics. And our job as religious people and as religious leaders in the progressive church, I think, is to help our communities decenter their how, decenter their praxis, and recenter their why, recenter mm-hmm. their deep theology. And, and make sure we say, yeah, and we're going to do all this stuff together, and we're going to have worship together, and we're going to structure it in this way that helps the most, like, that there's always going to be something for everybody. We're going to decide to create a place that, like, satisfies you 70%. As long as everybody's satisfied 70%, we're in a good way, right? Because the worship isn't about one person's experience. It's about yeah. our collective experience. And I say to people, you should actively dislike 10% of my worship services. Because if you don't, that means you are way too central in my worship. Yeah. Right? And I should dislike 10% of my worship service too. Yeah. Because it's not about me. But <laughs> I like, really hate this song, but I'm putting it in this Sunday. <laughs> yes. Because ultimately, we're, we're doing this praxis so that we can deepen this deep theology, mm-hmm. deepen our commitment to this. And we can't be too beholden to how we do it. Well, and at the end of the day, to truly have a relationship with God is to be changed by God. Yes. It's to be transformed by the love of God. And so if you want everything to stay the same or to stay in a way that is comfortable for you, then you are not having a relationship with God. Because how can, you, how can you change if not, if you don't allow anything to change around you? Right, right, right. Well, I think that that is a great place for us to set this one down. Um, <laughs> I encourage you, all of you, if you haven't yet, please vote. Please participate yes. in this democracy. And please allow other people who vote differently than you don't stay on the surface. Go to those deep theology places about what is what is your vote saying about what you love and what you care for and what you want to nurture and grow in this world. Let's have those conversations instead of those garbage partisan conversations. Let's talk about our values because that's how we're really going to reorient this ship. And make sure you read all the instructions on your ballot yes. that you sign in the right place, that you circle in the right way that you and and get it witnessed if your signature has changed in the last 10 years there is a possibility that they could throw your ballot out because your signature doesn't look the same so especially the elders in our community who have been having issues with arthritis and your handwriting has been changing or those who have english as a second language yes please get your ballot witnessed if you need and don't be afraid to put your phone number or your email on there at least in washington they will follow up with you they don't want to toss your ballot Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Like us, follow us. Please uh, evangelize us to your friends and family, especially those who don't agree with you. Yes. Send these to all those who think opposite of you. But just don't send them our email because we don't want the hate mail. Please. Bye. Bye.